Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to episode 159 of the MyFit Podcast. This week's show is one I've been juiced up to do for quite some time. This week on the show, I interviewed the incredibly talented Michael Bungay Stainer, or MBS for short. Michael is the author to several books, including bestseller, The Coaching Habit, which has sold over 1 million copies to date. Michael has also founded a training and development company, Box of Crayons, that has taught coaching skills to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. He's also been featured on the TEDx stage with a brilliant speech titled, How to Tame Your Advice Monster. For those of you that tuned in last week, I did an entire episode talking about the importance of asking questions. And that show was recorded, that conversation was recorded a month or two ago. And then I was gifted the book, The Coaching Habit. And I'm so glad I was because this book just aligns so much with everything that I believe coaches should be doing, which is asking more questions, leading their clients into autonomy and, and, and creating empowerment in the conversations that you have. And when I was reading the book, The Coaching Habit, I underlined so many uh, excerpts of it because I just agree so much with the things that he pointed out. And some of the topics we got into today around the book, of course, and, and others were what does it mean to be curious a little bit longer? Some of the episodes, people that, that I've been on in other podcasts and in my own podcast, I've talked about what's the number one quality or characteristic of a professional coach. Told this story numerous times. And I think the number one quality is being curious. So when Michael talked about curiosity and how he also agrees, I was super gratifying and I wanted to dive into that a little bit deeper. And I love the way he spells out what does it mean to be curious a little bit longer? After that, we talked about what goes wrong when we give advice. Then we talked about what is our advice monster and how do we tame it. Then the meat of the episode was going over the seven coaching questions that lead to empowerment, clarity, and action. And his book titled The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever is based on those seven questions. And then within that, we got to talking about understanding the drama triangle the importance of silence in conversation, and then also the parallels between lessons learned from a former FBI hashes negotiator, Chris Voss, who I've had on the show, talking a little bit about what are some of the parallels that he talks about, Chris talks about when dealing in high pressure situations and how it also, it really has a lot of parallels to the coaching conversations. Uh, and we dive into that towards the end of the episode. And at the end, we talk about what are the three components to start doing something that matters. Michael has a brand new book that just came out and I wanted to give him a chance to talk about that. And that is at the end of the show. 
If you guys do enjoy the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review and refer it to a friend. If you've been listening for a while and you haven't done that yet, I ask you to please do so. It helps my show grow tremendously, puts a huge smile on my face, and also helps bring more amazing guests like Michael on the show. So without further ado, let's get to this insightful conversation, The Coaching Habit with Michael Bungay-Steiner. Let's go. Michael, welcome to the MyFit Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, man. I just reread your book, The Coaching Habit, for the second time. Absolutely loved it. I'm really excited to dive into all things asking questions today. Well, thank you, DJ. I'm happy to be here. I've just come from the gym where I've returned after a bit of a break, so I can barely move. It hurts to breathe, so I'll do my best to keep up during the podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Tell me about what it means to be curious a little bit longer. absolutely love this quote that you say. Yeah, you know, we are advice giving maniacs. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's we have been well trained by life, by school, by everything to say look, the way you add value is you tell people stuff. And there is definitely a place for advice and guidance and learning and training and you know, classic in the fitness industry there's all sorts of things you can be teaching people. Like when I'm wanting to learn how to deadlift, I need to know to stick my bum out and keep the bar close to my shins. And I'm not going to figure that out myself. I need to be told that. And the idea is that if you can stay curious a little bit longer and rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly, it means that your advice lands in a different way. It also means that you're asking the other person to step up and get more engaged in the, the learning experience. So, you know, if, some, if I'm being taught how to deadlift and somebody goes, hey, what do you already know about deadlifting? Like I've, just, I've literally just rejoined a gym up my road and the guy gives me the, the, the lowdown on how to do a deadlift and not screw you back up. And I'm like, I kind of know this because I've done this before in another gym. But if he said to me, so what do you know about deadlifting? And I'm like, well, I think I know this. And he's like, that's great. I love it. Anything else, you know? And I'm like, actually this. And he goes, yep. And I go, maybe this. And he goes, no, not that. I'm like, okay. And he goes, right. So here's what I would, knowing that you know all this, allow me to make these two small suggestions. And I'm like, that was great. You made me feel smart. You helped me wire my brain, confirming what I already knew. And you reminded me that you're the smartest person in the gym because you still told me some stuff. So that piece around curiosity is a way of actually deepening relationships with the people with whom you work. So to, to make a final point and then I'll stop yabbering on. You know, if you run a gym, I'm making this up. I don't really know DJ, but I'm going to guess here. If you're running a gym, what you love are people who keep signing up for your gym. They keep paying their monthly renewal fee or they buy another block of 10 lessons or whatever it might be. People buy relationships. If you can build stronger relationships, you're going to have people more, more people signing up and recurring. And it's always easy to get recurring payment than find a new person for your gym. Asking questions, being curious will help you be more relationship-based rather than more transactionally based. So true. So Michael, what goes wrong with advice giving? What are some things that can happen? What can go wrong with people that are giving advice? Well, um, there's a couple of levels to that, I think, DJ. One is um, a kind of just a technical stuff, which is quite often you're offering up not very good advice to solve the wrong problem. <laughs> because we get seduced into thinking that the first thing that shows up is the real challenge. And actually, it, it often isn't as obvious as that. Um, you know, one of my favorite questions from the Coaching Habit book is, so what's the real challenge here for you? 
And what it says in that question is, hey, you know um, what you think is the challenge? You've just painted the picture so far. We haven't really got to what's really going on. And if you leap in too quickly with advice, you're offering up um, solutions to the thing that is actually not really the problem. But then there's a deeper thing, which is if you become, if you work on a default assumption that advice giving is the right thing to do, and you do that with your clients and with your peers and with your family and with your colleagues and with your boss, there's a a subtle message that goes out, which is you're not good enough to figure this out yourself. <laughs> and not only is that diminishing for that other person, it's exhausting for you because you then become the bottleneck of everything. You're like, okay, everyone has to come to me for everything. That's the way I like it. I like the control. And actually that's tiring for you, frustrating for everybody else, disempowering for everybody. And then your advice actually isn't quite as good as you think it is because you're solving the first problem. It's a mess. All you need to do is stay curious a little bit longer and it can get a bit better. How true is it too, Michael, that sometimes people come to you and they don't really want advice. Maybe they just want to be heard instead of giving some sort of feedback. And it's funny because a lot of people will insert before even thinking, wait, you didn't even you didn't even ask me for advice. How many times <laughs> on this on this in these conversations and life in general do people just yeah. want to be heard? Oh, exactly. And you know, sometimes uh, when I'm do training, I mostly do training in big organizations and we do training and, and we set this up and we set up a three or four minute conversation and we say to the person who's asking the questions, here's the rule. You're only allowed to ask the questions, the four questions that are on this list. That's it. Mm. Apart from small, encouraging noises of, you know, kind of, mm -hmm, yeah, great, fantastic. You're not allowed to offer up any opinions, any ideas, any solutions. And two things happen. One is the person who's being listened to goes, that was amazing. I can't remember three minutes of somebody just listening to me intensely without giving advice. <laughs> I, feel, I feel better for it. And the other thing that happens is the, the person who's only allowed to ask the questions, their head explodes. <laughs> because they're like, I got so much to tell you. And I'm like, none of it's that useful yet. Um, so yeah, sometimes if people come and they just, and they just go blah, 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 sometimes all they want is somebody to hear them go blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And if you want a question that can help with this, like if you're thinking to yourself, what should I be doing? Should I be giving them advice? Should I be asking them questions? Should I just be going, that sounds hard and acknowledging it? Cause those are three good possible solutions. Stop working so hard to figure it out, but ask them, go, Hey, how can I help? Hey, what would be useful for me right now for you? What would help you most? Yeah. Um, and now I just say, look, nothing. Just you've already done it. You're like, oh, that's good. That took much less time than I thought it would because I wasn't even sure how to solve this problem. If they're like, I'd love to hear your ideas, or that's something. Right. If they're like, I don't know, I feel stuck. You're like, well, let me ask you a question. What's the real challenge here for you? Sure. Or how about just asking, are you looking for advice? Or are you just looking to be to be heard? And just kind of laying that foundation first. And that, that yeah. might eliminate wasting some significant amount of time. Um, yeah, I think those are all variations. I, I, I will always default to a slightly broader question than sure. a more specific question. That's just the way I prefer to do it. So I'd like, so how can I help here? What, mm -hmm. what, what, are, you look, what are you hoping for from me? Mm -hmm. um, uh, when you say advice or just listening, you're saying here are the two choices I've got for you. They might they might want something else. They might want I just want to be I just want to be appreciated. I want feedback. They could have something more specific, 
Um, so you can go, is there anything specifically that you're looking for from me that I could help you with? So all variations on the same thing. The power is basically the same, which is ask them a question rather than assume you know what they want. Fantastic. You talk about the advice monster and you have a really cool TED talk on it. You absolutely crushed it, man. Tell me a little bit about what are the three personas of the advice monster? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I give a lot of speeches and most of the time I'm pretty comfortable with my content. So I'm like, I get up there and I talk and I interact with the audience and it's, it's fun. The TED talk, they're like, you got 17 minutes. Don't screw it up. It's the most important speech of your entire life. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and you can't go over, right? Like they're very, yeah, you like, can't go over. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to, and you've got to. So for the first time ever, I'm kind of like rehearsing and memorizing a speech, but you've got to try and memorize it. So it moves beyond the place that some people get to, which is like you can see them reading the script in their head. <laughs> like I'm just repeating what's in my head mm. to actually then going, how do I now make this appear like I'm not just reading a script, but I'm actually engaging naturally with it. But anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, the three personas of the advice monster. Well, let me tell you the story why I, I came up with the advice monsters. I, I first wrote this book called The Coaching Habit, and that's the one that's sold a, you know, a million copies and done amazingly well. And what I realized is there were three responses to the, the coaching habit. Some people, and maybe a bit like you, DJ, go, oh, this is great. <laughs> I see it. I get it. I agree with it. I'm nodding violently. I'm underlining bits. Mm -hmm. I'm writing down the seven questions because in the book, I'm like seven good questions will get you a long way down the path. And you start bringing it into your practice, into your podcast, into the, into the fitness work that you do. And you're like, great. And there's uh, people at one end of the bell curve who are like that. There's other people on the other end of the bell curve who go, this is stupid. This is you know, my favorite review on Amazon about the coaching habit is this is the worst book ever written. And I'm like, okay, well, some people just hate this book. That felt particularly harsh. I mean, I'm like, really? The worst book ever <laughs> written? Because there's some, there's some pretty bad books out there, yeah, but no, no matter. That's fine. If she, that's how she feels. I'm, I'm cool with it. Um, and there's some people who are like, I'm just not into, I just don't like it, don't want it, won't use it. You're dead to me. That's fine as well. Then there are a bunch of people in the middle who are like, I like this in theory. In practice, it feels much harder than I thought. Because in theory, it's simple. Stay curious a little bit longer. In practice, we're so triggered and wired to jump to advice. And people found that really, they're like, I know the seven questions. I've got them written up on my post-it note on my screen. And I'm just not asking them as often as I'd like. So the advice trap is a bit of a deeper dive into behavior change. And what is it that keeps us giving advice, even though we have a commitment to staying curious a bit longer? And the advice monsters, the three personas, are embodiments of, let's call them, get fancy, ego states that keep us safe and give us something by the short-term wins of giving advice. So they, the three advice monsters are tell it, save it, and control it. Tell it says to you, look, you, your job is to know everything and to have all the answers. And your job is to tell everybody everything. And if you don't have all the answers to everything, you're letting yourself down, you're letting your clients down, you're letting your people down. Basically, you're failing. Of course, that's amazingly hard to, I mean, that just makes you anxious. <laughs> I need to know all the answers to all the things. It's impossible, actually. And it's actually not that helpful because you having all the answers is this kind of disempowering act quite often. But the advice wants to whisper to you, like, you need to know your, you need to know your stuff. And I find that particularly true if, if you're in um, 
know, if you're a new manager in a in an organization, mm. or you're you're in a you're being put in a place of specific expertise, mm. and you think people are coming to you for your specific expertise. So I can imagine that's part of the fitness um, uh, industry. We're like, look, I am a I'm a fitness trainer. I know stuff. People, yeah, you, want don't, you don't that. want to look bad. You don't want to look bad. You don't look, want to look like you're like, I'm not sure how to do this. Or I'm not quite sure what the answer is. You're like, actually, you know what? I'm going to bluster it out. Even if I don't know, I'm going to throw out some big science sounding words mm-hmm. and that should get them confused for long enough for me to go up and look up the real answer on Google. Let's tell it. Save it is slightly different. Save it whispers to you and says, look, your job is to make sure nobody ever struggles or stumbles or fails or finds it hard or feels upset. Your job is to rescue everybody, protect everybody from everything. Protecting turns out protecting everybody from everything is just as hard as it is to know all the answers to everything. It's impossible. And of course, you know, we all know that our exposure to the world is what strengthens us. It's like working out. You know, it's stress and recovery is how you build muscle. It's like same with showing up and being an adult. It's like being exposed to stress and then recovering from it is how you grow your capacity and your courage and your uh, emotional intelligence and your real and you know your other intelligences all of that goes through that but if you're the rescuer the save it advice monster you stop that and then the final advice monster the most the, the kind of the, the most cunning of the three i think is the is control it. it says your job is to make sure that you're controlling everything control the start, you control the finish, you control the end, you keep your hands on the steering wheel, don't let anybody else take control. Make sure that you're running it from front to end because if you're not running it, if you're not controlling it, if you, if you take your eye off the game for just a minute, chaos will come in and you don't want chaos. You need to stay in control of everything all the time. Just like protecting everybody from everything all the time or knowing all the answers to everything, Controlling everything all the time is also impossible. But we have these practices, ego states within us, and with good reason. Like there's been moments where being in control, being a protector, having answers have served you well. But advice giving becomes problematic when it is your default response. Is it? Like I say, there's always a place for advice. But when it becomes your default response, as soon as somebody says something, you go, "Oh, I'm going to add some value here. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to give them some, going to give them some advice. Look at me. I'm telling it, or saving it, or controlling it. That's where it gets tricky. So what we're, what we're, the behavior we're here after here, and I'll say it again because you've heard both DJ and me say it. Staying curious a little bit longer, rushing to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly has underneath it, you're managing it so that advice giving isn't your default response. It's a thoughtful response when you do offer up opinions. I find it fascinating that you use the word ego in the ego states, because how often is it, Michael, that we want to give advice and become empowered, look better than our counterpart. Mm-hmm. And that's really just in its purest sense, filling in our ego. How much is ego playing a role with giving advice? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, advice giving often has these short-term wins, and they're often about reinforcing status and authority and control and power and knowledge and you know helping people. I mean, all of those three advice monsters give you a short-term win. 
And sometimes that's appropriate, but there's always prizes and punishments for every choice that you make. So it's like going, what's the, what's the cost? What's the price being paid by me giving advice all the time? We've kind of touched on some of this already, but you know, some of it is just, it disempowers the other person. It says to them that you're not good enough to figure this out yourself. It makes you the bottleneck. <laughs> it actually makes the, the collective less smart because you're not figuring stuff out. So there's, there's a price that gets paid. You know, the relationship becomes more transactional. You're only as good as the last piece of advice you gave me. Whereas if you're like, you're, you always help me figure this out for myself, then it gets interesting. I mean, you know, I'm Australian. So one of the sports that I follow a tiny bit is rugby union, uh, which I know in North America is, is less popular. But the, the dominant team in rugby union is the New Zealand All Blacks. Mm -hmm. They are just extraordinary. And it's this mm -hmm. tiny little country. It's like 3 million people or something. Mm -hmm. But the All Blacks are the most winningest national team ever. They have a win percentage of like 80%. And that would be, even if you just looked at the last 15 years, that would be closer to 90 or 95%. I mean, they're just, just incredible, ferocious. Um, and that, as an Australian, is terrible because they're, we're, they're, we're traditional rivals and they, mm -hmm. they've just beaten Australia every game for the last 12 years, even though Australia is, you know, somewhere between fourth, third, or second best team in the world. It always just crushes them. It's like, ah. And I just remember reading about their coaching approach where they're like, their coaches say, look, we don't spend a lot of time telling people what to do. We spend time helping them figure out what to do. And you would think that at a team that is operating at that level of excellence, it'd be all about the minute gains and the incrementals, you know, small wins and stuff. And it probably is that, but they've got a fat, they've got a wiring towards we're helping to treat people as adults mm. because when it comes to de decision-making on the field, we need them to be figuring out what's going on, not going, what were, what were my orders? Very cool. So the million-dollar question, Michael, is how do you tame your advice monster? <laughs> well, you do two things. <laughs> you start by going, you know, sort of Alcoholics Anonymous style, I'm Michael and I have an advice monster. So it's just, it's just recognize your advice monster. And... As you said, there's a TEDx talk with me talking about this. So if you do TEDx, Tame Your Advice Monster, you'll find that easily enough. But if you want to take a quiz, there's a website called tame, uh, theadvicetrap.com, which is a book URL. There's actually a quiz you can take, which will give you more information about which advice monster is strongest in you. So just recognizing that is a really good start. And then it's about really building this coaching habit, building this curiosity habit. And it's just to say, look, once you see how often and how quickly you default to giving advice, where and how do you want to start building the curiosity muscle? And, I, and I'll do my best to keep this kind of fitness metaphors. It's like if somebody walked into your gym and goes, here's my problem, you don't try and change everything all at once. You don't go, right, we're going to do a massive leg day and then a massive chest day and then a massive arms day. If I, I don't know if those are real things. I think they are. Um, but um, you, you go, all right, here's, here's where I think we start. We're going to start with this thing. And I think it's the same with curiosity where you go. So do you want to start with how you interact with your clients in your gym? You go, you know what? When somebody asks me a question, I'm going to see if I can ask one question before I give them advice. 
you might start choosing that habit and you might you just have the same question every time you go somebody goes hey what's happening with this and you go well, what do you what do you what do you think the real challenge is here for you and that just becomes your go-to question or maybe you go i love and what else <laughs> yeah. so you ask a question you're like my goal is to ask and what else in response to every answer they give me so at least one and what else per interaction so yeah. they go when you say to them hey what was most helpful for you in the workout today and they go oh that's a good question i think the i think the kettlebell thing was most useful you go great what else was useful and you're like oh that that makes them go oh there's a bunch of things that were useful in this workout i should come back here more often that's good for you and them but it also is you building that curiosity muscle Awesome. I love the power of questions, man. And I'm nodding so much over here because this is what I do on a daily basis when I coach my classes. Right. And sometimes somebody will do a lift and they'll ask me, how did that go? And I re right away without a skip of a beat, I say, how do you think it went? Exactly. And I just turn it right back on them. And ultimately what I think it does is I don't mean to come across lazy when I say this, but it gives it puts less work on my end, gives them more to work on, gives them more to kind of think about, reflect on. And yeah. that gives them empowerment because I think in most cases, most scenarios, Michael, the client has the answer. It's just up yeah. to you to guide them. And as coaches, if we can kind of, I don't know, grasp onto the idea that we're more guiders than we are tellers, mm -hmm. coaches, coaching yeah. type models, that's where the success really is. When you can kind of guide them to the answer. Yeah. Do you agree? I do. So, you know, if, if, if I'm, so here's, here's my suggestions on tiny tweaks, what you're saying. And so just take it as suggestions. It might be a terrible idea. You know, everyone's noticing the irony of me leaping into advice giving as we do this, <laughs> but here we go. So somebody does a lift and they turn to you and they go, Hey, DJ, how did that go? Here's what I might say. I might go, look, I noticed what I noticed a couple of things and I'll tell you. But before I tell you what I noticed, what did you notice? Mm. So here's the tweaks. First of all, I'm like, I am going to tell you some stuff that I've discovered there. So you give me a reassurance that you know, I'm not just, if you do, if you, all you do is ask me that question, I'm like, I'm sorry, why am I paying you again? I mean, Good sure, point. I get access to some heavy weights, but I also want some of your expertise. So I've got some thoughts, but before I tell you my thoughts, I've got some ideas. I did notice something. Actually, there's one thing that came to mind, which I want to tell you, but before I do, these are all variations on, I've got, a, I've got something for you. But first of all, what did you notice? And I like, what did you notice as opposed to how did it go? Because what, is it, what did you notice moves it away from judgment, good and bad. And it's more about the kind of mechanics. I noticed that the bar was a bit far away. I noticed that I squatted deeper than I did last time. I noticed that I've dislocated my right shoulder and could we get a medical help, please? It's hurting quite a lot. Um, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And, and then he goes, okay, that's great. What do you think that means? So now you're helping them learn how to interpret what's going on. What do you, oh, you squatted deeper. What, what do you think that means? Like, I think I'm getting stronger at my squats. Like, I think that too. That's great. I noticed it went deeper as well. And you see, it's the same, it's the same question, but just a little more nuance around notice data, interpret data rather than just judge. I thought it was good. Like, yeah, I thought it was good too. That doesn't actually help me that much. Um, what do you notice? You're like, you know, what? I noticed I was back on my heels. I noticed I was tipping forward on my, my toes. 
All uh, right. What do you think that means? Ah, I think it means that I've got this weight's too heavy for me. <laughs> like, I think it might be too. Why don't we take off a couple of plates? Yeah. Very cool. I love it. Thanks for the advice, Michael. And by the way, I have like, I, <laughs> if you're listening to this and it's like, Michael clearly doesn't know what he's doing in a gym. That's true. <laughs> I'm just making up words that I think I've heard other trainers say to me at some stages. So, you know, if if you think if you're turned off by Michael's pretending to know what he's not talking about in a gym, just listen to the questions that are underneath it. That's the real value here. I think they're fantastic, man. And I think to give people some more context, what I'd like to do next is go through those seven questions. If sure. we could just go one by one, and then maybe I have just some notes on each of them that we could kind of break it down a little yeah. bit further. I think that'll help kind of paint the picture for the listener. So if we could, uh, first question, oh, let's let's dial it back a second. Why these seven questions? Is Was there some research behind it? Before we yeah. uh, get going here, let's set the table. Why these seven questions? Well, one of, I have a design principle, which is what's the least I can teach that would be most useful. It's very tempting when you know a bunch of stuff to overload people. And um, part of the art of a great teacher, which is, you know, in some ways, another word for coach, is figuring out what's the useful thing to teach. <laughs> And then to keep all the other stuff, you know, just in your back pocket for another so time. True. So true. And so when I try and write a book, I'm like, what's the shortest book I can write that would still be useful? So a lot of, a lot of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor before the coaching habit became the coaching habit. And that included a lot of questions. Like I spent actually a number of years going back and forth between questions. Is it three? Is it five? Is it? My first idea for this book was, here are my favorite 108 questions. I like the number 108. It's, kind of, it's got kind of a mystical vibe to it. It's also got a cool mathematical vibe to it because it's 100. This is a random thing. Two to the power of two, two squared, which is four, times three to the power of three, which is 27. And, oh, so one to the power of one, which is one, times two to the power of two, which is four, times three to the power of three, which is 27, which is 108 which is also the same, same number of stitches that are in a baseball. So random 108 <laughs> segue. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so I went back and forth and I'm like, okay, so I can't, I don't want to create a list of questions that are appropriate for all situations because that's endless. If people only had the seven questions, would they be able to be coach-like for most people most of the time? And I'm like, I think so. So it was a lot of back and forth. I mean, I literally, before I write a book, I spend time trying to figure out the structure of it because the structure of it is everything. Once you figure out the structure, you can then fill in the gaps, fill, kind of fill the buckets. You got to have your buckets in the right order. So I just, I just went through a lot of paper, <laughs> writing out questions, moving it around, playing with it. And like I say, these questions, they, they combine together well. You don't have to ask them in any particular order. They cover most of the things you're trying to achieve in, in most conversations. And seven felt about as much, as many as people could handle. Yeah. And they're fantastic. They're, they're, they're so good. I want to go through each one of them. So number one. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to propose we do them, uh, do a little pairing up. Sounds great. Um, so I'm going to combine one and seven, which I call the bookend questions. So there's a, a way that it can be really powerful to know how to start a conversation quickly and finish a conversation strongly. Sure. And one of the reasons people resist coaching 
is they're like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. Who has time for these long, rambly conversations? I'm like, nobody does, unless you're a professional coach and you have a couch and you can lie down on it and chat. But most of us aren't that. And so the bookend questions, you start with the question, what's on your mind? And the power of that is it says to the other person, all right, tell me what we should be talking about. Tell me what you're excited about or worried about or thinking about or anxious about. Don't tell me everything. Don't tell me, you know, don't give me the lowdown of the entire week. Give, let's get there. Let's get into it. And what's in your mind is a way of just accelerating towards what's most interesting in the conversation. It, it won't get you immediately there most of the time, but it gets you a lot further down the path more quickly. And the, the final question is the learning question, which is the, um, uh, how you finish a conversation. My conversation, you can do this on email or by text, by video or by voice, you don't, or you know, asynchronously or in the real time. These questions, this is going to Star trek -y. They transcend time and space. You can ask them anywhere, anyhow. But the learning question is, so what was most useful or most valuable for you? And, you know, if you're thinking, and, and what this does is it says, people don't understand the value of the exchange they've just had with you until you ask them what was valuable about the exchange they just had with you. And the bonus is that when you ask this question, you also get feedback about what was valuable about the exchange that you've just had. And I'm not just talking about a conversation. It's like, let's say you put something, let's say you do a, a one-to-one -one training session with somebody in your gym. And then at the end of it, rather than going, hey, man, fist bump, you're awesome, which is what my trainer normally does to me. I'm like, that's fine, but it doesn't give me much. If at the end of every session you go, what do you think was most useful or most valuable for you in this session? You know, what made the real difference? What's the thing that you're taking away? What, what, what moved you most? What felt the most valuable part of this for you? They're going to go, you know, it was when, and they're going to tell you something, and it's not going to be what you expected. And that's powerful because a number of reasons. You're getting feedback so that you can be a better coach to that person next time. You're like, good, we'll do more of that next time, less of some other stuff. Secondly, and this is kind of the cunning part, you're having them say, this is a valuable, useful relationship. And they're having it say it every single time they work out with you. And what that means is when they come to their monthly renewal and they're like, do I sign up again for this gym? They're like, every interaction with DJ is both valuable and useful. So I think I will keep going to this gym. And you're helping them find the value and helping them see the relationship as valuable. So those are the two bookend questions. Um, what's on your mind? The way of getting into it. Hey, before we start on the workout today, what's on your mind? Um, nothing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Ah, you know, I do have this thing in my back. <laughs> um, at the end of it, what was most useful or valuable about this session for you? What are you taking away? What do you know now that you didn't know before? Those are all ways of just helping people extract the value plus give you feedback. Yeah. The last question, the, the quote I really liked from the last chapter was people don't really learn when you tell them something. They don't even really learn when they do something. They start learning and start creating new neural pathways only when they have a chance to recall and reflect on what just happened. And as a podcast host, this could not be more true for me 
because I'm having a conversation. I'm learning a lot right now. But when I go home and tell my fiance about the conversation and I'm able to reflect and pull out, that's when things really start clicking. When I'm able to tell people about Mm -hmm. my conversation or about the book that I'm reading, it takes it a whole nother step further, especially with books, right? When I start explaining to other people, this is what I'm reading. This is what I'm getting out of it. It puts things into perspective. It gets some like actual verbiage into it. It brings the picture into much more clarity for me. So I can really resonate with the idea of being able to talk about it, getting it out into the abyss. And for people to, to make this point, you know, you and I have been talking for about half an hour. You know, if you're listening to this, the question I have for you is what's been most useful or most valuable about this conversation so far? And think about what that answer is and notice that this podcast has just become a little bit more valuable and more useful for you because you're now not just going, Michael sounds like a random dude to going, you know, Michael said that one thing and that's going to be helpful for me. And now it's just bumped up. You're going, I'll tune into the next uh, episode of the podcast because that was great. Very cool. Awesome. What's next? So I would then go to um, question two and question three. Question two is the best coaching question in the world. And you've already heard me talk about it, which is, and what else? Um, And question three is the focus question, which is what's the real challenge here for you? And the two insights that are tangled up in those two questions, we'll start with the focus question first. Most of the time, people don't know what the real issue is. And one of the ways that you become more valuable, more rare, offer up more, more value in what you do, is you help people figure out what the real problem is. If you, if you build a reputation for the person who always figures out what the problem is, rather than the person who rushes to the answer, you're you're seen in a different light. So what's the real challenge here for you is a more sophisticated, subtle question than what's the challenge here? Because what's the challenge here gives people a chance to give you the kind of the quick executive summary. When you go, what's the real challenge here? You're saying to them, there's more than one thing going on here. What do you reckon? What's the real challenge? You're making them think. And them thinking is outstanding because my attempt at another fitness metaphor, if you're a trainer and you're working out on behalf of your client, (laughs) that's actually not that helpful for anybody. (laughs) Um, Your job actually as a trainer is to be lazy, which is to say, look, my job is to get the other people to shift metal around and lift weights and run and treadmills and the like. It's the same with coaching. Like if you're doing the work for them, it's actually not that that helpful. If you got them doing the work, if you're being lazy, that makes you a more powerful coach. So what's the real challenge here? Makes them think, allows you to be lazy. Good stuff is happening. New neural pathways are being formed. What's the real challenge here for you? So now we've got the full question for you at the end of it. What that does is it somehow shifts the spotlight from the problem to the person figuring out the problem. Some ownership. You no, know, what's the, you're doing a deadlift. What's the, what's the real challenge here? Deadlifts are hard. <laughs> um, what's the real challenge here for you? Um, I have the wrong type of shoes for this deadlift. I need, I'm, I'm wearing runners and I should be wearing. And whatever shoes you wear for deadlifts. Mm-hmm. So you're like, it becomes more specific and more about them rather than about the, the challenge. 
But here's the question. You ask, what's the real challenge here for you? You're going to get an interesting answer, but it's not their only answer, and it might not be their best answer. So that's where the, the and what else is really powerful. Best coaching question in the world. Just helps you stay curious a little bit longer. So what's the real challenge here for you? And what else? And what else? Right. So what's the real challenge here for you? And if, you, if people are interested in like, so what does this actually sound like in real life? Um, a little while ago, I was on Brene Brown's podcast, Dare to Lead. And uh, to my surprise, about 45 minutes in, she goes, okay, Michael, so coach me. <laughs> it was a very anxiety-provoking moment. I'm like, okay, try be cool, Michael. Don't screw this up because a bazillion people are listening to this podcast. But it actually went pretty well. And if you want to see me role modeling some of these questions, you can listen to that conversation with uh, Brene and me and um, hear me trying to, well, hear me coaching her, but also hear me using the power of silence to deepen the conversation as well, because there's, there's a few long, awkward gaps. And all you can hear is the drip of my sweat hitting the table as I'm trying not to panic about all the, how much silence there is. But, but really, I wasn't panicking because I've been around long enough to know the silence just means they're working with the question, and that's success. Mm -hmm. I listened to that. So that I listened to that last week, and then I yeah. listened to that literally right before we hit play. I, that was the last thing I listened to before in preparation for this conversation. Well, well, what did you like about it? I mean, what struck you? What did you know? I, to use my I, question? I loved the whole thing. And I thought she did a fantastic job with the interview. You did a fantastic job educating and laying things out. But in, in response to the the role modeling or the, sorry, the modeling piece where you guys were going back and forth, the role, the role play, sorry. I thought it was incredible how you were able to let it sit and mm. be silent. There was a moment where I had my phone on the counter. I was on the kitchen and I got up to go over <laughs> and check my phone because I thought a notification interrupted the podcast. And it just goes to show, wow, how uncomfortable are we sitting right. in silence? The second thing I picked up on was she's a very fast talker. I could imagine mm. that she, when she's sitting in her chair standing, she's kind of got a lot of these going on. I don't know for sure, but that's what I would imagine when I listen. And then when I hear you respond, Michael, I hear and I see somebody who's very calm, yeah. slow to speak, and the dialogue is one word at a time. And you can see the conversation speed go really fast to yeah. really slow. So by the end, you got her thinking and she goes, you know, it seems like I think I just need some more discipline and everything yeah. kind of calms down and the anxiety goes down on both sides. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of comes back to your tone and your cadence with your words. I thought it was incredible. Thanks. And, and as an aside, um, the video had, had failed. So oh, okay. I was doing that blind. I couldn't see what actually, how, oh, wow. what her body language was. I was just listening sure. to, to what was going on. Um, you know, one of the, one of the principles that I hold, and this is helpful if you're a coach, is that people respond to the strongest signal in the room. And you are in the place to being the strongest signal in the room. So how do you embody the energy that you want to be in the room? And so, you know, when I show up as a coach, which I don't do very much of actually, ironically, but as a teacher or a facilitator or a presence, I'm deliberately saying I want to be comfortable, confident, vulnerable, relaxed, playful, engaged. Because if I'm, if I'm embodying all of that, 
then the audience is going to just kind of with mirror neurons on the like actually feel some of that as well and be some of that as well. I can be the signal that lifts the energy and influences the energy in the room. So there's a way, you know, as a as a coach or a trainer, you're like, what's the energy? What's my presence? Because I am this, I have a status in my gym. I am the strongest signal in the room. Am I uptight? Am I angry? Am I nervous? Am I technical? Am I generous? You know, it's like finding two or three words. You're like, these are the words that I want to embody as a presence in the in the place that I work. Will build your reputation and will shape the culture of that of that space. Fantastic point. Another point that I really liked in that chapter with the fo- of the focus question. I think it could be a book on its own. And for a coach, I really enjoy this. I'd love for you to dive into this a little bit deeper before we get into the foundation question. But you talked about coaching for performance versus coaching for development. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about why that's so important and why you put it in this book? Yeah, it's it's kind of coaching jargon. You know, get bounced around and doesn't mean much to most people because they're like, "What's the difference?" And it took it actually took me a, a little while to actually <laughs> memorize what the difference was. Coaching for performance is getting the thing done. Coaching for development is growing the person who's doing the thing. You know, the metaphor I sometimes use is coaching for performance is looking after the fire, and fires always need to be stoked or banked or put out or built up, whatever it is. But coaching for development is growing the person who's looking after the fire. And there is a place, just like there's a place for advice, coaching for development, uh, coaching for performance is often, let me, let me tell you stuff <laughs> so you can get stuff done. And I'm like, there's a place for that. But you become a leader and an influencer in a different way if your focus is around coaching for development. And it turns out that when you think back to that, the focus question, what's the real challenge here for you? When you add for you to the question and to any question, really, you're, you're mostly moving it from a performance to a development question. What's the real challenge here is a, a performance question. What's the real challenge here for you is a development question. And if you can have more development conversations, you're growing the capacity and the confidence and the self-sufficiency and the wisdom of that person. And that's a wonderful investment. Yeah, phenomenal. Do you have any other ways, whether it's a question or comment or any other advice for people who want to have more development type conversations or have a more development type impact. For me, Michael, this is something that I feel very passionate about. I want to be yeah. the coach that's developing for, for development, developing yeah. to the long term. What does that look like? Yep. What else? How about that? What else? What, what else is great? <laughs> I, I think a question that we've already talked about, which is what are you noticing here is a really is a really helpful one because you know, another way, another label to put on this is emotional intelligence. And, um, and there's a thousand different definitions for emotional intelligence, and I'm not, I don't have one memorized. But I broadly think emotional intelligence is your capacity to notice yourself in a situation and to decide whether it is serving you <laughs> right now or not, and being able to change it if it isn't or keep it if it is. That ability to kind of just almost be a little bit outside yourself and, and look in and go, how's that going for you, Michael? <laughs> and I think that question is like, what are you noticing here? 
is one of those reasons where you're like, what, what are you seeing here? Um, what does that tell you about you? What does that tell you about us? What does that tell you about the situation at hand? And then beyond that, there's, you know, there's all sorts of other models that can be useful just in terms of understanding your role in a context. Like one that I, I talk about in the Coaching Habit book and I think is really powerful is the drama triangle or the Cartman drama triangle as its kind of full title. And um, the Cartman drama triangle, it's got its, its roots in a, a therapeutic model called transactional analysis or TA. Um, and TA gives a language like parent-child relationships and adult-to-adult relationships to kind of make sense on a therapist couch, but they don't really make sense in a public setting. You know, if you're working with somebody in a gym and you go, I think we have a parent-child relationship, that's weird. <laughs> you know, work, that's just weird. Um, but if, but the, the, the drama triangle says, look, when things go off the rails, and by the way, they always go off the rails. You know, not, it's not normally a, a cat- catastrophic crash, but things just get a bit wonky. When that happens, there are three roles that we play. There's the victim, there's the persecutor, and there's the rescuer. And these three roles bounce off each other, are triggered by each other and bounce off each other. The victim is the, oh, it's so hard, it's so mean, it's not fair, poor me, woe is me, come and save me type of person. The persecutor is the, you're crap, this is ridiculous, I'm frustrated, you're all idiots, I'm the only competent person around here. Or more subtly, I'm the micromanager. And then the rescuer is the, I'll jump in it, I'll solve this, I'll fix it, give it to me, let me take it on, don't fight, don't argue, be play nice, let me smooth the waters. And um, once again, as with all of these things, like the advice monsters too, this is not saying never be helpful <laughs> or never have boundaries or, or never just acknowledge the hardness of what's going on. It's just saying that there's a way that these can become default responses and they can make the relationship a bit dysfunction because when somebody shows up as a victim, that often triggers some of us to be rescuers. Sometimes it's when persecutors, I'll be a rescuer. Or it's a rescuer, which means I'll be a persecutor. We respond to somebody. And I think it's... um, it's helpful to know two things. It's helpful to know what your default role is. So if I'm asking you and I'm asking everybody in the podcast, you know, victim, persecutor, rescuer, what do you think your default role is? If you had to pick one of those roles that you play most often. 100%. So here's what's interesting. When you ask people this, approximately 95% of people go definitely rescuer. (laughs) (laughs) And And I always say to them, I think that is actually the response that a victim would give, oh, which some people are like, oh my God, you're playing with my mind. And other people are like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's helpful to understand that. Um, the truth is, in some ways, they're all variations on the victim role. You know, uh, the persecutor is just like, you know what, attack is the best form of defense. Um, but then the other interesting question is this, what question, what role do you think you play least often? I was going to say the victim. So here's the insight that is mostly true. The role you play least often is the role you're most easily triggered by. Yes, absolutely. 
So when somebody starts playing the victim, you start playing the rescuer response to that. And before you know, you've got this dysfunctional thing playing out. Yep. Yep. For me, for me, it's persecutor is the role I play least often. Although I play it most often with the people closest to me, like with my spouse, my wife, I'm like, Oh, I've got some of that going on. (laughs) It's like, it's not pleasant, but so it goes, but I don't play the persecutor that often. Um, So when a strong persecutor comes up, you know, a kind of bully or a shouty person, I find myself really triggered into the into the rescuer role most easily. So all of this is a kind of an aside to kind of go, this is this is how we grow ourselves, which is we start seeing our patterns, we start seeing how we respond in context. It's it's a conversation from me as a atomic unit and the rest of the world to going, look, I'm just integrated in the rest of the world. When you ask me a question about what's going on, when you go, what's the real challenge here for you? You now become part of the problem. Uh, you know, when you go, what's what's the what's the role you're playing in the drama triangle? You're now going, oh, it's not just that they're terrible. Yes, <laughs> it's that we have a dysfunctional relationship. Sure. And part of that shift is, I think, a move from performance to development. Really, I love it. Okay, what's next? Then there's the foundation question. The first four questions are questions that I personally ask all the time. I think those are daily questions. You can always find a a reason to be asking those four questions. The foundation question is what you want. And it is a a slightly rarer question to ask for a couple of reasons. One is um, it's a a trickier question to ask. You've got to get the tone right. (laughs) Because what you want can sound a lot like what the hell do you want? what you want. It can kind of somehow come with frustration or uh, anger or irritation or whatever it might be. But I find it particularly helpful to, if, if, if a conversation feels a bit stuck and I can't get to the heart of something, I'll just go, so what do you want here? And it's a really hard question to answer for most people. Most people aren't that clear on what they want. Mm-hmm. So you'll often get a little silence. Um, and then you go, well, what else? What else do you want? What else do you want? Right. So what do you really want? And what that does is it kind of takes you to a kind of a, a heartfelt understanding of this is what's important for this person right now. And then you can go back to some of those other questions. Okay, so if that's what you really want, DK, what's the real challenge here for you? Mm. And suddenly you're like, see, I'm just reusing these questions. I'm, a, I'm very environmentally conscious here. Just keep reusing the same few questions. Um, the other place where I think the foundation question, the what do you want question can be really helpful is um, if you're wanting to give somebody feedback, you're like, I, we need to have a conversation, but you can feel yourself avoiding it, <laughs> which we often do. Like, I don't like conflict. I don't want them to cry. But it turns out for me, and this is true for others as well, um, sometimes we avoid the conversation because we haven't got clear on what we want. We don't know what we're asking for. We know there's something irritating going on, but what's the request? How do we want it to be different? So if you're finding it, finding resistance around having a conversation, a conversation, what do I want can, with yourself can actually be helpful to kind of go, oh, this, this is what I want, then this is what I need to tell them. Awesome. I love it. Let's keep going. So I think number six is, is that the strategic question? Um, so the foundational question was, what do you want? So um, did we go through the lazy question yet? Lazy question, no. So um, uh, 
uh, I always get uh, five and six uh, muddled up. Um, the lazy question, and you know, you you mentioned the lazy word earlier on in this in this conversation, but the lazy question is um, paradoxical. It doesn't sound lazy. The lazy question is, hey, so how can I help, or what do you want from me? Which doesn't sound like it's lazy, but it's particularly good for the ninety-five percent of people who self-identify as rescuers. Mm. Who love to leap in and go? Let me. I, I think I know what you want. Let mm. me come in and fix this, solve it, rescue <laughs> you for you. And what it does is it actually creates a beat, a heartbeat for you to slow down and go. You know, before I before I start doing something that I think you want, why don't I ask you what you want? And um, you know, and then we talked about this earlier, which is like they just want to get something off their chest. <laughs> they just want you to ask a question. They just want to be seen. You know, who knows? So the lazy question is, how can I help? What do you want from me? And then the final question is the strategic question, which is about articulating choice. Because there's many definitions of what strategy is, but one of them is, um, what are you going to say yes to, and what are you going to say no to? Mm. It's having the courage to make that choice. Most of us don't aren't that good at a strong yes. Because we we feel bad about the no that a strong yes must have, but your yeses are nothing unless they come with noes. So this is where you get clear on the opportunity cost and the choice and what's required for you to remove so that you can fully commit to the yes. So that's the final question, which is so if you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to? Or you can flip it around, of course. If I'm going to say no to this, what am I going to say yes to? Do you have an example of that, Michael? What that might look like? Sure. So, um, my worthy goal, which is uh, uh, subject of the new book, how to begin. But I'm like, what's the big thing that I'm working on this year that's thrilling, important, and daunting? So this year, 2022, I'm going to try and write three books. Now, writing one book is painful. Somebody said it's like writing a book is like staring at a blank sheet of paper until drops of blood appear on your forehead. It's like that. And it's like, that's not inaccurate. <laughs> so three books feels like excessive, but I like the, I like the challenge of it. I'm, it's, that is thrilling and important and daunting for me. But I'm like, okay, if I'm saying yes to writing three books, what must I say no to? I need to say no to speaking gigs. I need to say no to spending three hours a day dicking around in my e- inbox and doing email. I say need to say no to um, booking meetings in the morning instead of writing in the morning. I, I need to say no to a bunch of things that I'm currently doing to make that commitment to writing three books actually real and not sure. just fantasy. Yeah, totally makes sense. And it gets them to connect with those things that don't align with their core values. Right. Like, it, 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 people find it really easy to say yes. Mm-hmm. Or, or kind of obligatory to say yes, and getting them to say no makes the choice real. Yeah. After I'm curious. So this book came out 2016. So now it's mm-hmm. been six years. Looking back, I like to ask authors this all the time: Is there a question or a subtle piece that you would add to the book if you could go back? You know, no. I think that book is about perfect. And it's because I wrote six or seven drafts of it that I kept being rejected by the publisher so that it, it, it has been worked over a lot. 
And I think one of the reasons it's sold a million copies is it is it has an elegance to it and an arc to it and a shape to it. And I don't think there are there are any wasted words in that. So I look at that and I go, it's about as good a book I could it's as good a book as I could have written, and there's nothing I would change about it. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And it feels pretty good to say that because that's not true about my other books. I'm like, (laughs) I could change that or tweak that. But this one I'm like, it's 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 like a diamond that's kind of clean and clear and crystal and you know and cut well i agree uh, i wanted to share with you I, I had a guy named chris voss on my show and he's a former oh, yeah. fbi the, the negotiation know, chris, dude yeah, yeah so he's a former fbi hostage negotiator i had a chance to actually get dinner with him in, in las vegas and get to know him a little bit more and read his book and so he talks a lot about um tactical empathy when it's um in refer- referring to having these you know, high pressure conversations with the bad guys and yeah. tactical empathy. And one of the, he has several components that makes his um, scenario successful. And one of the things he says first is uh, let the other side go first. And additionally, make sure your counterpart speaks five times more than you do. And as I'm reading your book, I can't help but think of these hostage negotiation, you know, key components and how there's a lot of similarities. So one was make sure your counterpart speaks five times more than you do. And in our yeah. seven coaching questions, we're making sure that we're not speaking as much. They're speaking more. Another component that he talks about is labeling. I've been doing this a lot ever since reading it and getting to know Chris. And and it's the idea of labeling emotions. So using things like seems like, feels like, sounds like. And you know, there's a there's a, many examples that he talks about when he talks about a person that is in in a bank robbery and they're they're screaming, yelling, I need this, 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 I need a car, I need all this money. And he responds very subtly and calmly and says, seems like you're frustrated. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm frustrated, blah, blah, blah. And he goes back and forth. And being able to label the response, I think, is is super crucial. And the last one that he talked about, and I want to hear from you is the is mirroring. And mirroring was repeating the last one to four words of your counterpart sentence. And I recently had an experience of this at the gym where a client of mine said, I just want to look good for my big trip to Hawaii. And in response, I say, your big trip to Hawaii? Yeah, we're going on this really big trip and my in-laws are going, I want to look good in a swimsuit. We're probably going to take a lot of photo. And it just spilled things out. So yeah. I'm curious, as you hear some of those things and you're familiar with a little bit of Chris's work, tell me a little bit about how sometimes labeling and mirroring comes into play. And it's sometimes it's not even a question. It's maybe just reiterating what they just yep. said to you. What are your thoughts? So labeling is really powerful because even if you get it wrong, it's still helpful. Mm-hmm. I go, wow, it sounds like you're frustrated. It's like, I'm not frustrated, you asshole. I'm, I'm angry. You're like, oh, so it sounds like you're angry. And he's like, exactly, I'm angry. So what's nice is you, you're not... It sounds like, or it seems like, allows you to put it on the table, and both of you can you can either take pick it up or put it down, and neither of you lose face if it's not right. So there's a way that it just offers a way to say, "Here's my guess. Help me out here." Sure. Um, and it seems like so. That's another phrase. It's, so my guess is that you're, you're you're pretty frustrated about this. Like you're wrong. You're like, yeah, it's my guess. It's my best I could do. Um, and you, if you're like, so you're angry, it's like, see, you're not even hearing me. <laughs> so the, for me, the, the labeling is in the nuance around the, it's an offer rather than a declaration. 
And then I think the um and the the five times talking, I'm not I don't know about five times, but I'm like definitely you want the other person talking more <laughs> well, that's and part of part of curiosity as is ask a question and then shut up and allow allow the space for the other person to talk. And then for the for the mirroring, the repeating the five the last few words of the statement, I would see that as a uh a, a, a form of or a variation of and what else. You know, what's interesting about and what else is people don't even hear you ask that question. They just hear you holding the space open for more yeah, answers. Yeah, how true and is that? I think, I think that's the same with mirroring. Yeah. They don't even hear you just repeating back the four questions. Good point, good point. The four words. They just hear you going, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Say more. Yeah. Um, now, here's the difference. Um, when I'm a coach, I'm actually not that interested in the scenario and the facts and the details because I don't need to solve anything. I suspect that if you're Chris Voss and you're in a hostage thing, you're actually trying to figure out a bunch of stuff. And what you're doing with the mirroring is getting them to say more and share more detail. Um, but if you're, if you're not you know, rescuing from a, a hostage, it's a little, it's, you know, I'm like actually finding out details keeps, it feels seductive because it makes me want to, um, solve the problem for you. So sometimes, you know, you hear coaches going, so tell me more about that. And I'm like, why do you need to know more about that? Because if you just go, but what's the real challenge here for you? That's the value book, but which is like, what's hard about this for you? And the details don't actually matter. Great point. Last question here. So we, we call the, you call the book, the coaching habit. Why is it a habit and not just something that you just add to your toolbox? And when you talk about habits, I think ha the word yeah. habit is very big in my space in the in the fitness space. People are always trying to create good habits. How do we create this to be a habit, not just something that's like, oh yeah, that one guy told me to do this, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw yeah. this out now. Well, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there from habits from Charles Duhigg. You know, James Clear obviously took Charles Duhigg stuff and made it applicable. Leah Babauter and Zen Habits, another great kind of stuff around this, you know, habits are unconscious responses to what's going on. And it is tricky to stay curious a little bit longer. So if you can move through the, 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 the learning pyramid from unconsciously incompetent, you don't even know that you suck at this, <laughs> the consciously incompetent, which is where most of us are, which is like, ah, oh, I'm really noticing how much I love to give advice. The consciously competent, which is where you're like, you know what? I'm getting the hang of this curiosity stuff to unconsciously competent, which means that you're now got the coaching habit and you're like, just, it's just a built in response for you around, hey, so what's, what else? <laughs> which is what, where I am with most of the stuff, which is like, I'm not even thinking about it too much. Well, it becomes second nature. Michael, tell me about how to begin. Yeah, how to begin is my new book. Um, it's a little bit of a, it's still around this, how do you bring out the best of people? But the, the essence of this is we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. So how do you help people work on the hard things? How do you find something to work on? Mm. And it kind of centers, that's the emotional heart of it, but the practical heart of it is let's rethink about how goals are set. And you know, when you ask most people about goals, they will give you a smart goal, right? Smart goals are the thing. I'm like, are they though? <laughs> smart goals aren't that great. The, the science behind them isn't that great. Nobody quite knows what SMART actually stands for. So in how to begin, we're talking more about how, does it, how do you set a worthy goal, something that is thrilling, 
important and daunting. And that focus is around going, you know, it's not the same as, you know, brushing your teeth on a regular basis. That's more kind of a good habit to build. But this is around where you're going to put your time and your resource and your relationship equity and your reputation. What's worth, what's worth being worthy of your life? And how do you find the goal to do that? Wow, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it. To me, that just sounds like it's, it seems like that is getting in touch with your core values, taking the time to sure. be aware, reflect, taking a step back. I'm just making assumptions that, and this is something that I take a tremendous amount of passion in is people just not taking the time to figure out what do you want? The foundational question. That's right. So what do you want? Is It's strongly connected to that question. It's just like thrilling, lights you up, speaks to your values, speaks to who you are and who you want to be important gives more to the world than it takes. So it's not just about you, it's about service to a bigger thing. And then daunting is it keeps you on your learning edge. Very cool. Michael, is there anything else that you'd like to plug before we go? Uh, you know, uh, if you want more of this stuff, mbs.works is my, my website. And uh, you know, there's stuff about the books and stuff there. But if you want a free program, there's something called the Year of Living Brilliantly. It's 52 weeks, 52 teachers. You get a short five-minute video every week. It's a really diverse, interesting range of teachers, completely free. So you can just find that and sign up for it at uh, mbs.works, my website. Very cool. This is fun. Um, so one last time going through it. It's what's on your mind and what else? What's the real challenge for you here? What do you want? How can I help? If you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? And then what is most useful for you? It's fantastic stuff. It's a great book. I really appreciate Thanks. you taking the time, Michael. And um, any last words? I don't think so. I really appreciated the conversation though. Thanks, DJ. Awesome. Thanks for stopping by, guys. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to get the book and get it on Amazon or wherever you get books and then share it on your Instagram. I'd love to hear what was most useful for you in this exactly. conversation. And we'll see you next week on another episode of the MyFit Podcast. Take care, everybody.